Smartcast. You are listening to a Mint production brought to you by HD Smartcast. I'm Shomak Khoshal, the books editor of Mint Lounge, and this is the Lounge Bookcast. Every week, I'm going to speak here with one author from across the world about their latest book, how they came to write it, what were their challenges and inspirations. and what does it mean to be a writer in this time this podcast is from hd smartcast india's fastest growing podcast producing platform this week my guest is scientist and writer anirban mahapatra who has very kindly joined us from the us to talk about his recent book covid-19 separating fact from fiction for those of us who want to go beyond the news cycle and hot takes this is one of the go-to books which combines scientific knowledge with a keen alertness about the sociology and economics of pandemics it's a privilege for us to speak to anirban at a time when here in india we are seeing a huge surge of cases during the second wave of the pandemic there are conflicting theories about the resurgence and the efficacy of the vaccines currently available in the indian market but before we get to separating the fiction from the facts let me start by asking anirban to tell us about any major developments into covid-19 research that he's noted since his book came out in february first of all shomak thank you for uh, having me on this program i i look forward to speaking with you today and thank you also for your kind words on the book uh, i really do appreciate it uh, yes as as you just uh, mentioned uh, there have been some major developments since the book was published a little over a month ago i would say the biggest major development is that now we're seeing that spike in india that uh, that w- that people are going through um uh, uh, right now in in especially in major cities of india where 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 cases have risen above uh, last i checked it was over 130000 cases a day so i would say in the short term that is one thing that has happened uh the other thing that i had sort of predicted in the book and the largest chapter in the book uh is about vaccines and so vaccinations are underway and uh, as i had also mentioned that's going to be one of the stories of this year is uh, is vaccine efficacy finding out adverse effects of vaccines and then the the distribution of vaccines within the country within various groups but also globally in various parts of the world uh some parts of the world don't have access to drugs and treatments uh uh as um as do other parts of the world which are um which are more privileged in that aspect and then um finally i would say that i ended the book or I, when i finished the book and it was published we had just gotten to know about one variant of concern from the uk and that is the uh the b117 uh variant um and i have to say in writing this book i went through many drafts at first the scientists said it may be infectious it may not then we figured out um, that it was more infectious and caused more severe disease and i think i left it the book with that open question um what would be the effect of variants on the spread of disease and now we know that variants have played a major role and so if there could be a 23rd chapter or an addendum i would say that that has to do with the interplay of variants and vaccines and i wrote a piece uh, for mint uh, just last week on 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 variants and what we know about them as well so i would say uh, so far all the 
prognostications have held up uh, in the in this time it's very interesting that your longest chapter in the book is about vaccines and i was just thinking what do you make of india's approach to the vaccination program and especially now that the second wave is well on its way i think it was always going to be a huge challenge with the uh, with the number of people that we have and the the heterogeneity of our our systems even in normal times we see a difference in service available to people who are in cities can avail of of private hospitals uh, compared to our secondary and tertiary healthcare centers uh, the disparity between states uh, you are in one of the southern states which has a relatively good health infrastructure uh, kerala tamil nadu these, these have pretty good health infrastructure compared to some other parts of india so the reports that i'm seeing is that we don't have a uniform response to vaccination with that said i will say that the rollout for some of the high risk groups throughout the country of the two vaccines that are available has been reasonably well and and this is i'm ba- basing this off of not just uh, the number of vaccinations that have occurred in this uh, span of time but also my personal experience with speaking to my elderly relatives and and high risk individuals who have received their first dose of of one of the vaccines so i mean could it be better yes of course it could be especially with the the spike in cases and now the concern about the variants um but that i would say is the positive the negative is the uh it's always difficult communicating during a pandemic uh but i think the communications around all the aspects of something that deal with uh, human health could be much better first of all with what these vaccines are meant to do which i hope we get a chance to discuss a little bit later but also uh what how these vaccines were approved letting people know that they are safe and effective and what they what they can and cannot do and then convincing people so i think there are two sets of uh, communications that need to happen one is to people who uh, want vaccines and are not able to get them immediately just to let them know that they will be vaccinated in due course that are going through high priority um uh, which people right now and the second is con- convincing a large uh, group of people who don't want to get vaccinated at all um i wouldn't call them vac- anti-vaxxers because they have nothing against childhood vaccinations but there we don't have a real history of adult vaccinations in india plus there have been mixed messages around how severe covid-19 is and the coronavirus pandemic and trying to reach this natural herd immunity and so a lot of people that i have spoken to so i'm from a a, a small town medinipur which is in the news right now for for different reasons because of the elections but the reports that i'm getting is a, is that there are vaccines there and people who are eligible for vaccines don't actually want them uh, there's a bit of fear but there's also a little bit of apathy and um, disinterest in getting vaccinated i think it's also uh, partly that there are reinfections after vaccination and that is causing a lot of confusion among people although the who had already said that these vaccines are about 70% effective against the virus um i would like you to break it down for us a little so that people understand why there can be reinfections after the vaccine and what vaccines can actually do uh, in terms of you know increasing your chances against the virus 
It's a great question. There are a lot of messages around these vaccines, and I think people are having to keep in their heads lots of numbers that they're not used to, which becomes confusing even for people who create and study vaccines, like multiple efficacy numbers, like when should I get my second dose, uh, which one is better, and then information about side effects. But the key message uh, I would convey to everyone, uh, first of all, is that uh, we are worried about SARS-CoV-2 and COVID-19, and it's caused a pandemic, not just because of how fast it has spread. I mean, there are other viruses that spread fairly fast, but because of the severity of disease. And so any vaccine that uh, keeps you alive, keeps you from going to the hospital and having to be on a ventilator or get oxygen is a vaccine that you should take. If that And, and overall, uh, severe uh, cases, hospitalizations and deaths are prevented by all vaccines that we know. So that is the number one message that should first of all be conveyed is that it is making a very severe pandemic causing disease into something that is milder. And so that in that sense, all vaccines that are approved are effective, uh, regardless of the efficacy numbers and how well they are at infection. Now, the second part of that is that COVID-19 is a disease uh, that has a sort of the spectrum of mild, moderate to severe. It may not prevent all, the, all vaccines may not be similarly effective in preventing all cases, especially the mild cases of, of COVID-19. Uh, and the other sort of confusing factor of this is that there be maybe people who uh, harbor infections uh, asymptomatically, they are carriers. So they have silent infections. Uh, they don't have symptomatic COVID-19. These vaccines were tested, first of all, to prevent symptomatic COVID-19 and severe cases. The, uh, it is expected they will prevent some infections, but infections happen earlier. They happen in the upper respiratory uh, airway where uh, some of the immune responses uh, don't, don't uh, go or are as strong um, unless you have a very strong immune response. So not all infections will be pre uh, prevented. I think the other point I want to make about, um, about infections is that you are not protected until you have taken uh, fully protected with a strong amount uh, until you've received both doses, if it's a two-dose vaccine, and two weeks after that, because you have to give your immune system time to respond. A lot of these reports that I'm seeing in newspapers everywhere are saying, oh, 30 doctors got uh, uh, their first shot, and then they, they just immediately, four or five days later, they all got um, COVID-19. Therefore, uh, the, the vaccine, no, they may, they may have picked it up prior to that. They may have even picked it up now, during or after they got their first shot. So uh, yes, it takes time for the immunity to build. And then even after that, if you have an asymptomatic or mild infection, um, I understand uh, it's it, you would rather not, but uh, it's better than going to the hospital and being on a ventilator. Right. Taking you away a little bit from the you know nuts and bolts of vaccination and real world problems into you know, the deep end of science, uh, one of the most fascinating chapters in the book uh, for me was where you describe the biology and behavior of the virus. And it's this tiny entity which doesn't have any significance on its own until it finds its host and starts attacking uh, the cells. 
So I wonder whether you would like to dwell on this dichotomy a bit. You know, the virus on its exactly. own is nothing, but once it enters the body, it becomes a force to reckon with. Yeah, so viruses, and there's a quite a bit of debate whether they're living entities at all, because they are, they can be handled and they are infectious nanoparticles outside the, uh, outside the body, whereas within the body, they act like they are living, um, they are a form of parasite. Uh, so in that they require other host cells to, to be able to live. Uh, we tend to, and we have been doing this over the course of the last year, uh, give the virus sort of human characteristics, uh, anthropomorphize it uh, and call it, okay, the villain, the virus is the villain, but it is actually uh, most of the processes that are happening and the, the way the virus is infecting and getting more infectious through the variants, it is a random process. And what scientists like to say is using fancy terms is a stochastic process of how it actually bumps into um, into cells and gets in. And the other thing is this is one virus out of a large number of other viruses that don't infect us. So we are coming at it from the vantage point of seeing it uh, because it is uh, harming us. Uh, the other thing that I will point out is when we talk about mutations and, and what the virus does, we notice this particular case because of, uh, of what it has been able to do to us. And so uh, out of all the random mutations possible, out of all the viruses, the one that infects us and is, is the one that gets selected in our body. So uh, it's sort of taking this, uh, even in life, we're taking the skewered view that we are special because we're talking about us. And, and so I, I just wanted to say that, that the, the, the virus itself um, is, is the, has no personality or attributes like that. It follows basic biological principles. And the basic biological principle is uh, the more it spreads, the more it, uh, the more it gets uh, prevalent and the more it's found. And that's a, just a basic biological tenet. But for us, that's sort of a scary thing. Right, right. The other very interesting chapter for me was the one on drug trials, where you talk about how, uh, you know, this is the time to have more drug trials and develop vaccines and drugs for future pandemics. Um, we never think of drug trials as sort of creating drugs for future pandemics and diseases. So if you could talk about that process a bit. Yeah, nobody thinks about the fire extinguisher until there is the fire. I like this uh, this uh, comparison a lot because this this points at some of the complexities of trying to create drugs and vaccines for diseases that do not exist yet. Most of our drugs and vaccines come through the pharmaceutical industry, and they are profit-driven enterprises. Now, if they put in hundreds of millions of dollars to create drugs and vaccines for diseases that don't exist, there's no demand for them. So they cannot recoup their costs. So a lot of the economic factors that drive the creation of drugs depend on how lucrative it is to actually have the drug. So if we look at the history of coronaviruses and and uh, how it's been studied and, and drugs and treatments for it. Uh, there was an epidemic, SARS, the original SARS, 
then there is there has been mars but in every single time and i mentioned this in the book as well as as sars died down the funding for creating drugs and vaccines also dried up there was no incentive to do that a small number of scientists did continue to research it and this is sort of a fascinating story of how we got these vaccines really really quickly there were a group of scientists who were working on these other platforms uh, the mrna platform which is now uh, used across the world but also the adenovirus vector platform which is uh, two of them one is in the astrazeneca covishield the other is is in the johnson and johnson um, system and and uh, with with the with some of these vaccines uh they were do using these systems for for um for other diseases as well so the system was fairly well established and was at a point in time that they were able to ramp up after the pandemic struck the other thing is the target here for these vaccines for the antibodies to be created is a spike protein and there's this amazing history about how a group of scientists uh published a few papers before this uh, pandemic on different spike proteins that look like this one so they were very quickly able to help the vaccine developers based on the basic research that they had done before so what this points to is that yes while we were unlucky that uh the pandemic started and it was a new virus in a sense it could have been worse if it had been a virus that we didn't know anything about it was not had not been a coronavirus we didn't know about the target spike protein and it had been less well studied so this, this is about vaccines with respect to drugs it usually takes anywhere for, from 5 to 10 years to develop a drug now as we know that once a pandemic happens you do not have the time to uh to have that that those drugs at the outset at the start of the pandemic we will get some drugs uh hopefully this year that are more tailored and designed towards SARS-CoV-2 so all the drugs that we had at the start of the pandemic that that were available were approved for other diseases they had been shown in in small cases and in studies to be somewhat effective and these are drugs like right now everyone is talking about remdesivir Remdesivir is in in high demand especially in in Mumbai and in other places uh it is not um, an ideal drug for SARS-CoV-2 it's not uh, the first generation is not one that you can swallow it has to be it's an injectable and it's in a something called a pro drug form but it gets changed into the drug later it's also not a magic bullet uh it's it's not effective in everyone and there's some debate over the cost benefit for it but the point here is that it was developed for ebola during the middle of the ebola crisis and so my point here is that we do know that rna viruses like sars cov2 will continue to haunt us in the future and viruses jump into people on a regular basis so we should have a medicine cabinet of wide uh, spectrum antiviral drugs uh, some of them which may work some of them which may not but having that will definitely be helpful for um, for future pandemics and there are programs right now underway to develop what are so called pan influenza and pan coronavirus vaccines for uh, for future epidemics so these would not be uh, very highly effective or efficacious because they are not directed against specific targets but these are sort of broad, broad spectrum and might provide some some uh, treatment 
But as I said, my worry is that once the pandemic is over, if the funding dries out and people forget, as, as humans are want to do, then we may run into problems again in the future. I'm very sort of distressed to hear that there will be future pandemics, the certainty in your voice. Uh, and of course, we know that we are looking at a very grim future because of what we have done to the planet, the climate change and everything else. Yeah. But do you think there's a way of arresting these pandemics or, um, you know, somehow to sort of stop them from falling upon us again? So the thing about pandemics is that as you as you just mentioned, uh, climate change, crowding, deforestation, global international travel, where I can get sick in China or in India and, and fly to Canada or to another country, go through customs and immigration and infect a whole bunch of people uh, within a matter of a day. These types of things will are exacerbating the spread of diseases. And if we look at the pattern of diseases and pandemics, they will continue to occur. One of the most interesting things is that um, if we look at the history of pandemics, there are no uh, well-recorded pandemics before people started living in cities and, and developed agriculture and, and starting living together. Um, and the reason for this is very simple. When we were dispersed uh, in, in sort of hunter-gatherer societies, if a disease like SARS-CoV-2 happened, then it would happen to a small group of people. They might get sick. Some of them might die, but it wouldn't spread. And so diseases spread through, through um, not just this pandemic, but in previous pandemics, they have spread through a lot of uh, the same, um, same means. Now, those things are not going away. If anything, um, I see those uh, aspects uh, exacerbating. And pandemics have been occurring with more regular frequency as well, and they will continue to happen. Now that is sort of the, the, the distressing message and the scary part. I would say the optimistic aspect of this is that our ability to deal with infectious diseases has improved drastically. I mean, even within, if we, let's say, if we take a look at India, the average life expectancy has increased, childhood mortality has gone down. Um, malaria has been the greatest scourge of humanity uh, in recorded history with more people killed uh, by that disease than any other. And now it is, uh, it's still a problem, but it's less of a problem now. Uh, and then if we take a look at other diseases like smallpox, which is caused by a virus, uh, we don't think about it because it's been eradicated, but it was in the, even in the last century, it killed 300 million people. And so that's not a small number. Um, our ability to deal with diseases rapidly is improving. And that has happened in the last 100 years. And so when I see people make comparisons with the Spanish flu of 1918 and 1919, yes, we can make some comparisons, but it is also slightly misguided because at that time, nobody actually knew what a virus was. There were very uh, few ways to treat, um, treat the, uh, the disease or or even to control it. And modern medicine, as we know it today, uh, did not exist. There was no RT-PCR diagnostic test. Uh, and obviously there were no vaccines available uh, later as well. So I, I think there will be more diseases. We will have to deal with them, but it, it will be a constant struggle uh, and a tussle between, um, between expanding human life and, and human health and infectious diseases.
On that note, thank you, Anirban, for joining us. It's a real privilege to talk to you. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for listening in. Tell us what you think at HT Smartcast. We are present on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn, and YouTube. To listen to more podcasts, log on to www.htsmartcast.com or suno naye nazariya se. This was a Mint production brought to you by HT Smartcast. HT Smartcast.